This is Leader ReadyCast, a monthly podcast featuring real-world lessons, best practices, and action-oriented insights for the you're-it moments when you're called upon to lead. Leader ReadyCast is the official podcast of the National Preparedness Leadership Initiative, a joint program of the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health and the Center for Public Leadership at the Harvard John F. Kennedy School of Government. Subscribe to Leader ReadyCast wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Welcome to the latest edition of Leader ReadyCast. This is Eric McNulty, your ReadyCast host, and today we are discussing two important topics, trust and risk in a time of turbulence. Joining me today is Harlan Lowe. He's the Global Chair for Crisis and Reputation Edelman, the global public relations firm. Harlan is also a professor of crisis litigation and court of public opinion at Northwestern University and a lecturer and Ford Scholar at the Kellogg School of Management. Harlan has worked across sectors with clients ranging from Enron to Harley-Davidson to GE Healthcare. While he cannot go into his work with specific clients today, Harlan will share his insights and guidance for leaders facing a uric moment in the glare of the spotlight during or in the aftermath of an adverse event. For full disclosure, Edelman has been a financial supporter of our research here at the MPLI. Harlan, welcome to the program. Great to be with you, and thank you for having me. I appreciate you being here and appreciate the, uh, I know the insights you have because you're always in the thick of it. I wanted to start off talking about the trust barometer, which Edelman publishes every year. It's something I always look forward to reading, even if I don't like what it says, it's always informative. What is the state of trust in, in government institutions and private sector corporations? Trust in government is, for the last couple of years, we're seeing sharp declines. Just to give you a sense, Eric, trust in government is hovering around 43% globally, which is a a pretty low number. Uh, And in many instances, that is a clear indication and a leading indicator that government isn't meeting the the needs and and the the mandates of its citizenry. Where you see some outliers, of course, trust in government in China is high. Um, Trust in more authoritarian governments tends to be high for obvious reasons. But generally, we're seeing very, very sharp declines in trust in government. And particularly in the last year in the United States, trust in government. We survey 33,000 respondents divided into general population, which is the mass population, and then informed public. The informed public are those that are college-educated, consumers of news, many of graduate school educations, professionals. And so just to give you an indication in the United States, Eric, trust in the last year amongst the general population declined by 10%, which is the largest decline in trust in government that we've seen in the history of the, of the barometer, which began 18 years ago, and 20% amongst the informed public. So those people that are consuming news aggressively and actively, and trust went down even further. So it's pretty startling, both on the U.S. level and globally. That's, that is significant. And I, I wonder if you've thought about the implications or if you could speak to the implications, not so much for the elected officials, because they do what they do and they come and they go and one party's in, the other party's in, whatever it happens to be. But for those folks who are career government people who are out there just trying to do a job, serve the public, uh, whether it be in, in disaster response or providing some kind of uh, support program or doing research, how does this play out for them and what might they be able to do about this? 
their job, I think, is to disintermediate those that are good at it. It's very difficult to do. But for elected officials that are building their, or trying to build their brand, if you will, in terms of their credibility, their trust that their constituent constituencies have in them, it essentially is is direct, if you will, and borrowing from uh, the private sector, but kind of direct to consumer campaigning. So while you see extraordinary distrust in government, and I, and I can include a, a lawyer's joke in this, as you see considerable distrust in government, people like their own elected officials. So if you've got a congressman like Paul Ryan, let's use him as an example, extraordinarily popular with a huge base uh, of constituents, certainly as a congressman, and even as, as now the almost former Speaker of the House. So it, it really has become far more targeted in how you build how do you build build that trust and build that base collectively there's no answer right now collectively the disunity certainly between republicans and democrats has never been worse cocooning ourselves in the information that we're predisposed to believe has never been more challenging common sets of fact and facts uh, facts are now and they've always been negotiable but now they're now they're optional uh, and so it's become very difficult for any party including CEOs to be perceived and considered honest brokers of information, in fact. So th that's really been the, the collapse of trust in common set of facts, a common narrative is, is, is really lies at the heart of this. As academic as that may sound, that's really what's pushing the populism, you know, fend for yourselves, tribal instincts, is I think is really what's, what's pushing this. And it's very hard to, to wind that back, I think, is our challenge. Is part of this because we have yet to come to terms with the changes in how we get information. Uh, you know, again, a generation ago, there you would have known which were the reputable newspapers or broadcast TV stations, and people would have said, okay, I may agree or disagree, but I believe what they're telling me is relatively straightforward. And now with a, a million and one choices and all of the manipulation that can happen between AI and the other technological innovations, as a society, we just haven't come to terms with this yet or don't fully understand it, so we can't, we have no, we're not sure what solid rock to stand on. Yeah, as, I think that you've got it out in the head. As you saw the proliferation of, of digital, you know, digital landscape and information coming from all different precincts, and you had two things going on at the same time, both of, one of which was great, and the, and the, and the other was actually, I wouldn't say nefarious, but harmful in very subtle ways. So we've democratized information, the access to information, and we've democratized the ability to provide information through all kinds of different channels, bloggers, couch propagandists, elites, everybody, academia, all of that. But what we found is that it was so, in the democratization of influence, it became so overwhelming that people consuming information basically outsource their homework to some to one of their friends or outsource to well what is what is Eric McNulty saying about this I trust Eric McNulty he he's much like I am and he, whatever you know what he's reading I should be reading because we we share a point of view and so they started what happens we begin we to navigate this onslaught of information in which no you know no time in human history have so many people been saying so much to so few that we have to navigate that we've we've become very much a peer to peer peer to peer information consumers so i'll i'll we'll look at facebook and see who's commenting on what and what they're saying or we'll look on you know search history or search taxonomies of others that we know or that we've seen or will we, somebody we believe in the news media will follow that person even though what they're saying might totally uh, opinion driven from its the core so what you have is, you know, a, a 
a state of play in which and our, almost 50% of the public has checked out of news consumption because they just don't know what to believe. They don't know what's truly believable and what's, what's exaggerated, what is you know, false on its face. And so there's been a lot of opt-outs. And with that, this year alone, and this is interesting, we've seen a slight uptick in trust in traditional journalism, the old school, the credible national newspapers, whether it's the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, the United States, the Financial Times in, in the UK, those kinds of newspapers and those kinds of journalists have seen a bit of a resurgence of trust in those outlets, particularly amongst the informed public. But the disequilibrium that the information age, unregulated information age has caused is leaving is really forcing most people to just check out, including and that that doesn't know boundaries of race, gender, economic class. A lot of people have just checked out because they just don't buy it. It's interesting you talk about the democratization of things, and as I sit here with the podcasting equipment that we bought for less than dollars <laughs> uh, and two or three hours of uh, of investment of time into figuring out how it works, that's sort of one piece of the puzzle. And that's something that anybody can do. And people, as you mentioned, are, are creating blogs and podcasts and, and all kinds of sophisticated looking media. The part that people, most people I think don't understand is everything that happens before you get to that broadcast moment. Uh, I, having been in newsrooms and having counted among my friends and colleagues, uh, both print and broadcast and online journalists, there's an enormous amount of work that, get, that goes into the moment when the ink hits the paper or the, or the screen, or the, you flip the switch and start talking into a microphone. And that's the piece that the citizen journalists or the couch prognosticators aren't doing. It's, oh, I saw this, I've got a thought, let's throw it out there. I think they've never had to sit through a, you know, a story meeting and sell it to an editor and sell it to another editor and have it go fact checked and all those things that uh, used to give us some certainty. But that's a whole lot of work, so most people are not going to do that. What, what ways do you see in which leaders can help improve the situation? Are there opportunities out there in this great void of trust? Well, it's, an, it's a great question. And speaking of Harvard, Harvard's, the Harvard Business Review has recently has covered this well and written about it well. In the context of you know, with with rising trust in business, and that's that's directly correlates to the to the decline in trust in almost every other societal institution, government, non governmental organizations, media. That with and media is really the the source, and I think the catalyst for distrust everywhere. Because if you can't trust the information, or that that really defines and gives you dimensionalizes, if you will information about our major institutions. If you can't trust the, the medium, then the message is almost inconsequential. So business has really become the last bastion of hope for societal issues, as interesting as that may sound. So there's a growing expectation, particularly in the United States, but it's spreading, that CEOs and businesses will lead and will fill the vacuum on, on social issues, economic issues, uh, policy issues, all of those kinds of things all those uh, you know those categories of issues and so the this somewhat native rise and nascent rise of ceo activism and i put that in air quotes because not all ceos are activists or if they are they're differently activists they're differently active so business is be by expectation and, and in some cases performance you're seeing ceos stepping up to address and take active positions on 
economic and social issues, whether it's the North Carolina Religious Freedom Restoration Act issue, or it's the uh, immigration ban, um, travel bans, those kinds of things. You've seen prominent companies take fairly bold positions that aren't risk-free to address the issues that used to be the province exclusively of non-government civil rights organizations, environmental groups, those kinds of things. You've seen companies more credibly in some ways and more directly because companies you know are, have a have a are built for efficiency and optimization and now more uh, so they are perceived to be the last standing on the fr- on the uh, solution front well it does seem that there is a the sensing of that void and people saying someone's got to step in we care about it we will and as you say that's not without risk i think there are times when companies get it right and they're heroes and there are times we've seen them get it wrong and then they pay that price so i don't think anyone's paid a significant price in terms of shareholder value uh, but there's a bit of a reputation ding for a while. I think you're too far out in front uh, on the wrong issue. Right. No, it's an important thing to understand three things before you dive into that pool. Uh, and that is understanding your constituency. You know, who are the, what is your constituency, your customer base, your employees, where, the core competency of the organization? How and in what ways does this align with those critical, you know, those critical interest holders and their values? And so you do have to do the homework and not, you know, not every opportunity is a go up, you know, is a go opportunity because there are, there are popular causes and unpopular causes. And if you, if your calculus on that is wrong in terms of not only engagement, but form of engagement, are you engaging, are you doing it? Is it a, is a, is it an HBR article? Is it a ground campaign where you're doing it quietly and, and through, you know, private diplomacy or are you using a megaphone? And those are very important considerations. So if you look at, for example, in the wake of, of uh, any, in the wake of a lot of these things, you saw CEOs, Ken Frazier in particular, advisor, resigned from the, the President's Council on, you know, of Economic Advisors. The President Dunn was wrong and immoral and he couldn't be part of it. And while dozens of others followed, both those that were on the council, and he's the one who, who stood, you know, stood up and took the issue on directly, and as a consequence, that was enormously enormously valuable to the brand, uh, his own as well as the company. And you've seen it with uh, Salesforce. You've seen it with others. But for as many people as you know, Eric, that as many CEOs and companies that stand up and, and celebrate and advance their values in a way that is, I, I think, beneficial to society, there are those that are that you know, that wind up swimming at the deep end of the river. Yeah, it's it's tough. And again, there are certain companies that have more homogeneity among their stakeholders than others. Uh, I'm one company who I, I won't mention the name, but I was in conversation with one of their communications folks and they got very much out in front of the tra- transgender bathroom issue, which was hugely popular among their urban stakeholders. And those, that includes those around headquarters, but boy, when they got into the rural areas, there was a lot of blowback. That's right. When you've got a lot of uh, heterogeneity, a lot of mix in that stakeholder base. It can be tough to be, a hero to everyone, which then, again, factors into how you think through which, what issue do I jump on and which, what issue do I let somebody else jump out on? That's right. And the homework, you know, the research tells us that, you know, the safest issues for companies uh, to address as part of their activism um, uh, camp, you know, activism efforts or campaigns are the economic issues, whether it's uh, minimum wage or it's healthcare or, or those kinds of things that don't that aren't as easily partisan. That everybody understands the importance of healthcare. We may disagree on on the particulars, but we certainly uh, embrace fairly collectively the, the 
yeah, unimpeachable mandate to have uh, a good healthcare system. And the same is true with education. And, and there are kinds of, of institutional concerns that go to the economic and social vitality of, of our country. In, but it gets more diffuse as you go down the line to very specific issues as you've as you, as we all have uh, experienced with school shootings, and then the immediate and somewhat reflexive discussions on on gun safety as a consequence, and how that lines up, and what companies in those circumstances uh, have permission to do with their constituents or or not. So that becomes very difficult. The other piece to note is. In some ways, once an activist, always an activist. So if you're very vocal and visible on one issue and then not particularly vocal and engaged on the next, you know, what, what risks does that generate, on, not only for the CEO, but for the company? And how does that align with the things we were talking about earlier in terms of customer interests and employee interests and, and communal interests and so forth? So it's there's no there's no playbook for this, despite everybody's efforts to try to define the, you know, the boundaries and the parameters of this, it's still too, way too early to, to have that figured out. Well, to, to shift gears just a little bit, you know, as I've watched various incidents play out and be it a, you know, a data breach or a Me Too incident or any number of things that affect an organization's reputation, be it public or private, it seems to me that leader after leader and organization after organization struggles to get the response right. The tone and tenor of what they say, when they say it, who says it. So without going into any privileged client information, could you share with us what you see are the three most common mistakes that executive makes? And what are the three things you wish they'd get right that would put them in good stead, at least get them off of the right foot? Yeah, the three most common, particularly that we see is an insufficient understanding of you know, their, their zone of permission. So what, what do you have permission to say, given that, that most CEOs are not credible spokespersons, only 37% of the public see CEOs as credible spokespeople? So understanding that, you know, that, that, and there are celebrity CEOs that certainly, you know, do, uh, are a much higher percentage than that, but the vast majority of CEOs, are, their, their currency in terms of believability is pretty low. So understanding, you know, that kind of, and you talk about this a lot in the work that you do, but understanding, you know, where you sit as a leader in the context of, of all the different interests of your organization. So having that EQ is extraordinarily important and under undervalued or certainly under demonstrated, if that's a, if that's a word. And that's, that's the common mistake is know, you know, know, who, know how you're perceived, know what lanes you have, know, understand that we no longer live. And this is a big mistake in a top-down leadership society. We are very much an inverted pyramid right now where leadership is at the top, but there's just as much influence and authority coming from the, from the ground up. So understanding the environment in which you operate, I think, is what is in almost every crisis I'm in is is fundamentally lacking in in crisis response. Most of the time, manifest in the fact that had that they should have seen this coming. The storm clouds, exist, you know, were open and notorious and clearly present long before they did anything to to. Uh, address the issue. So that's one. It's just, just a certain obliviousness to, the, to, them, to how they operate within their own corporate context. Uh, the second issue is usually you have cultural issues that are at the root cause of almost everything we see, which all falls fundamentally into the soft risk area, the non-market risks of should, omission and commission. 
the obligation to have done something that, and not done it, or the vice versa, done something that you shouldn't have. And some of these, I'm not talking about fraud or deceit, but reporting something. But fear of retaliation, I'm not going to report. And this is the this is the, all the Me Too cases we're in right now is people were silent in the face of a soft obligation to re, to report, and the women that didn't report were facing retaliation when they did. So they were. You know, the culture shut them down and businesses were oblivious to it. Or if they weren't, they weren't paying it. They weren't affording sufficient attention. So understanding your culture and the behaviors that go on in that culture and what you're directly and indirectly incentivizing, because many times, and I see this often with CEOs, the behavior that they're seeing that's bad, they are tacitly incentivizing in some form or fashion. And then the final, the final area is, is the disconnect uh, between in most organizations between the leadership structure and kind of the heartbeat and ethos of the employee base. And those companies who, and there are Salesforce is a good example, where the pulse, the employee pulse dictates business strategy. Rarely, if ever, do I see them in the news. I haven't represented them as a crisis client. Those who really understand that performance cultures and that culture is uber Alice in running and maintaining and growing a successful company, those who understand that and embrace it beyond platitude are outperforming their competitors by in double digit percentages. And so understanding that it's like a, like a sports team, that you're only as good as your worst player and how, how, we, how are companies addressing that? And many you know, will immediately um, tap out because they think they're too big and they've grown so fast by acquisition that they've got 26 banks, for example, huge banks that have grown and have, by acquisition. And I think falsely conclude in many cases that they can't, it's just too big to, it's not, it's not a too big to fail issue. It's a too big to change issue. And if it's too big to change, then you got to re- look at how you're structured and, and re-engineer that. So those are the three things that, that, you know, is thematically that we see all the time. And, you know, all, the, all this dysfunction in a very macabre sense is great for our business, but it's not great ultimately for how we grow as a, as a business society and, and certainly as a, a more connected, on a more connected offline community. That's really interesting. And one of the key takeaways I take from what you just discussed is this inversion of hierarchy. That when you talk about organizations that listen to the heartbeat of the workforce, that's their guidance, uh, where people's hearts are as well as their heads in their hands. Uh, and then, too, I think when you get to the to formal hierarchies and how it's flipped, we've seen in a number of, after a number of natural disasters, certainly, and also I think some man-made ones recently, when you get a battle between, say, a, a mayor and a governor, and it's that person closer to the ground, it's the, the mayor who is closer to his or her constituents who really often knows what to say and, and how to say it, or even from the, count, the uh, mayor down to a council person, the closer you are to the ground to really be, understand and be able to sense what's going on, what do people need to hear, what do they want to hear, and the further up you go, the further away you get from that, the harder it is to get that right. No, that's true, which is why when everybody, the government context or public affairs context, everybody's, everything's local is the expression, as you know. That's right. And, uh, and I think that's because the, the bigger systems, people just don't trust big any longer. And they, they, that, that, which is, if you look at our trust data over the last five, eight years, it strongly predicted, without being explicitly stating it, this populist wave that's taken, you know, that's blown through the United States and Europe and, and beyond and beyond, but certainly the United States and Europe. It was if you look at every each year you saw it building up as the the 
the the gap between what we were saying earlier, the informed public and the and the general population, they were separating further and further in terms of their connectivity to each other and trust. You know, trust in trust data on both was was skewing in very different ways, and it became very clear that their their you know the erosion of of the middle was largely the cause, which then of course makes it quite easy for anybody who speaks to the to that middle to become quite popular and and celebrated because that, you know if if no one's talking to them and that gap is growing, who's going to fill the vacuum? And so it it became very clear as you as we. And this is always the challenge is when you deconstruct information after the fact, it becomes very, very clear. Well, you know, the, the, the cause and effect becomes almost binary and yet we missed it all the way through. So that has a lot to do with it. And I, and I, one of the good things, if we, if we can end on a high note is you're seeing some very positive move. The me too movement is, is a extraordinarily positive outcome from a very bad set of circumstances, both, in terms of the abuses that publicly ignited the movement and and what it is what it what it speaks to and we haven't seen a me too movement um or a movement of this kind in when i worked as a civil rights lawyer i i don't remember my in my professional career a movement that is really speaking to an issue with this kind of clarity uh marriage equality probably was 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 in the discussion but it, that took decades and now we're looking at we're looking at the Me Too movement, and it is is holding also you know they're doing an us all accountable and engaged, and businesses are have the, they have businesses full attention as well as government. So there is well, um, that, there is a ray of hope in all this. Going to say if, it, if it's a good outcome from all those unfortunate incidents over the years is that it may have come to the moment where they we can galvanize real change that is better for all concerned. I want to finish with just one last question and ask you for some tangible takeaways here. The bad thing has happened. You get the call from the chief communications officer or the public information officer in the case of government who has to now lead up to their boss, the agency head, the chief executive. What advice would you give that communications person so they can help their boss get it right? microphone, which may be the best advice of all. Yeah, no, it, it, no the, the, the general rules governing engagement are the following. One is, and this is, I have to say this is a recovering lawyer, don't hide behind lawyers. Lawyers will always, you know, they are trained and paid to be risk averse, but legal issues are hedgeable. You can hedge legal risk. I mean, it's, it's a money issue and nobody wants to pay lawyers more than they, they have to, but it's a money issue. So the legal issue, yes, it factors in, but ultimately in, in that defining moment, three things have to be true. You need to be able to act quickly without perfect information. And the way to do that is accountability, that's not accountability, meaning we will deal, you know, taking on the responsibility to get to the bottom of whatever it is that's challenging the organization and giving a, uh, giving clear view and clear direction on how it is that you're going to do that within the first couple of hours of a major conversation is absolutely critical. And maintaining humility, the humility and resolve throughout the conversation. And that is not instinctual. There is nothing instinctual about any of what I've just said, as you well know. So what that communications director should be doing, and it should happen long before anything happens, but certainly in the moment that happens, is speak truth to power. You don't have the luxury of trying to justify your trading price with the CEO or the leader that, you're, that you need to advise. You need to be clear 
unequivocal and direct. We need to be, we need to move quickly. Here's what we need to be accountable and we need to make it very clear what we're doing. So if you don't have answers and sometimes there are answers, but many times in the early moments of, of these major issues, uh, whether it's a huge data breach or it's a, an issue of, of a fraud or, or wrongdoing, you don't have any, you have very little information. So then describe the process that you're going to use. If you can't talk substance, talk process. And that sounds like that you're trying to, you, we're trying to kind of get ourselves off the hook. That's not true. It's just flag your, you know, tell in basketball, we, this is a bad thing, but in, in crisis comes, it's a good thing. Telegraph your passes. Make sure, very clear what you're going to do, what people should expect of you, and how you're going to get it done. And as you know more, and, if you, and you regularly update, regularly update. In situations like this, over-communicate. There's no risk when, you're, when you are under the gun of over-communicating if the world knows what's going on already. Those are wise words. Thank you, Harlan. It's been illuminating to speak with you today. And once again, Harlan Loeb is the Global Chair for Crisis and Reputation Risk at Edelman and a Professor of Crisis Litigation and the Court of Public Opinion at Northwestern University as well as a lecturer and Ford Scholar at the Kellogg School of Management. Be sure to turn into our next episode of Leader ReadyCast. You're it. Get ready to lead. Thank you. This has been another episode of Leader ReadyCast from the National Preparedness Leadership Initiative. Subscribe to Leader ReadyCast wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And find out more about us at npli.sph.harvard.edu. Follow us on Twitter at HarvardNPLI. Thanks for listening and be ready to lead.